0: Okay, we are continuing together our Sunday school studies in the subject of the Bible's covenants. There are five major covenants in the Bible. There's the Noahic covenant that God made with Noah and all the people on the ark and all the animals and all their descendants. There's the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob. There is the uh, old covenant that god made with moses and the children of israel on mount sinai there's the davidic covenant that god made with king david that he would never lack a son to sit on the throne and then of course there's the new covenant that jesus made uh, on um, uh, the, the night in which he was betrayed he instituted the last supper and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood um, And so we've been looking together at these covenants. We have been doing so using uh, the book from the Garden of Eden to the glory of heaven as our study guide. And we are in chapter nine and we have more recently, having looked at the Noahic covenant, having looked at the Abrahamic covenant, we're now studying together the subject of the old covenant. And um, we uh, have looked at the terms of the covenant, we saw that it was a conditional covenant that God made with Israel. And he says, if you will keep my laws, then you will be my people. And we saw that the terms of that covenant were set forth in Exodus uh, chapter 19 verses five and six. Um, Having then looked at that covenant and its nature and its parties and its terms, we uh, last time, begin to understand the temporary nature of this covenant. Um, The Noahic covenant, of course, is a permanent covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is a permanent covenant. And the Davidic covenant and the new covenant, these are all permanent covenants, but the old covenant was not a permanent covenant. And uh, so more recently then in chapter nine, we've been talking about uh, the nature of this covenant and why it was given. And we said that just like when you're building a building, you put scaffolding up temporarily while the building's under construction. And then when the building's finished, you tear the scaffolding down. It was never meant to be a permanent part of the structure, but it was essential while the structure was being built to its support and its completion. And in the same way, the old covenant was like scaffolding built around the Abrahamic covenant. And was there for the purpose of the development and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. But once that was accomplished with the institution of the new covenant, the old covenant, or if you will, the scaffolding of the Abrahamic covenant was taken down and removed. And so we've been talking then about uh, what uh, went away when the old covenant went away and what remained. And we have... Uh, seen that since the essence and the heart of the Old Covenant was the fact that it would involved God's law, and God, in essence, said to Israel, if you will keep my law and keep my statutes, then I will put my blessings upon you. So the Old Covenant was a covenant that involved um, the setting forth and the requirement to keep the law of God. Now we said that the law of God is divided up into three parts. There is the ceremonial law, which involves the temple, the animal sacrifices, the priesthood, the fast days, the feast days, the dietary restrictions, and all the cultural practices that Israel engaged in that kept her distinct and separate from other nations, both in her worship and in her cultural life. And then we said there was the civil law, and this dealt with the regulation of the civil life of the theocratic state of Israel. So this had to do with the laws that regulated um, the uh, behavior of the people of God towards one another and all the uh, civil penalties and uh, all the things uh, that had to do with civil and criminal law. And so... Uh, We read, for example, in there about cities of refuge and these types of things, and these are all part of the ceremonial, pardon me, of the civil law, which regulated the theocratic life of uh, the children of Israel. And then, thirdly, there was the moral law of God, and this was the Ten Commandments. And this regulated the ethical behavior of the people of God towards God in the first four of those Ten Commandments and then towards their fellow man in the last six of those commandments. Now, what we have asserted is that when the Old Covenant passed away, the ceremonial law passed away because it was all fulfilled in Christ. He is the great Uh, priest, he is the great sacrifice, and all of the uh, temple ceremonies and sacrifices find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And uh, of course, the um, uh, old covenant temple was done away with because Christ made the once for all presentation of his sacrifice in the temple that is in heaven, and we read about that in Hebrews chapter 9. Well not only did the um, ceremonial law go away, which made the children of Israel uh, religiously and culturally distinct in their worship from the nations around them. But then we saw that the civil law also passed away because the old covenant was a national covenant and Israel was ruled by God as a theocracy, as an external physical political state that that nation Uh, needed laws to regulate it. And um, what happened is that uh, no longer is God working with a nation state. God is now working with um, the church. And the church now is the new theocracy. We are the holy nation. Um, And um, we see in our memory verse today which we're going to be looking at further but notice he says to new covenant Christians but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation so the church is now the new Israel the new holy nation um, and it is our job now to be ruled by God and we now um, strive to establish a spiritual nation rather than a political nation, a a spiritual nation rather than an external physical nation. And so we now have um, an army. (laughs) It's all the people of God who fight the good fight of faith and who put on the whole armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, uh, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, etc. And we now uh, invade kingdoms, we invade the kingdom of darkness, the gates of hell do not prevail against us. We take captives out of Satan's kingdom and we uh, subdue them with the gospel. Uh, they come to submit to uh, King Jesus and they then uh, are translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. And so uh, it is not now the purpose of the church to establish political nations. Um, The church is the spiritual nation. And while as we as individuals live out the gospel in our lives, and we are going to have an impact on the external, physical, political structures of whatever nation we live in, it is not the mission and the message of the church to establish um, political entities um, that are, quote, Christian, unquote, but rather it is our job to preach the gospel and build up the kingdom of God, which is, of course, the New Covenant Church. And so the church is the theocracy of our day. And as the church conforms to God's word in its government, in its discipline, and in its worship, it exhibits to the world the gracious and righteous rule of God. And so the civil law has passed away along with the ceremonial law. But what we asserted last time is that the third aspect of the law, which is the moral law, namely the Ten Commandments, that these things still remain. And we said that as we looked at the Old Covenant, there was every reason to see a sharp distinction between the significance and meaning of the moral law of God versus the ceremonial and the civil law of God. The ceremonial and the civil law of God were written uh, in what is called the book of the covenant. And this was just simply a papyrus or a leather book uh, in which all the civil and ceremonial laws were written down by Moses with his hand. Uh, However, the 10 commandments were written on tablets of stone. They were written by the finger of God himself and they were kept uh, in the Ark of the Covenant. And so clearly um, they were written on a different media, they were written by a different hand, they had a different position of honor and significance, and thus they stand distinct and separate from the civil and ceremonial law, which were written in the Book of the Covenant. And so we see that uh, these 10 Commandments then are what were incorporated into the new covenant. Thus, our memory verse today in Jeremiah 31 and verse 33, where God says, "You know, I will put my law in their inward parts and will write it upon their hearts, and they shall be my God, and pardon me, and they shall be, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people." And so, um, this. Uh, the Ten Commandments then are, are still binding upon us as as a unit. Now, having then reviewed what we covered together last time, I wanted to turn in our confession today, and I want to read to you Chapter Nineteen, which sets forth the biblical doctrine of the law of God. So let's look together then at uh, our confession of faith. Uh, on chapter 19 and we're going to read together the chapter on the law of god okay y'all have a confession you don't okay um i think i got an extra one here and there's certainly some in the back here you go maston kirk you got one okay calvin's got a couple Okay, chapter 19 is on page 28. Um, You know, it's important for us to understand that when we read statements in the New Testament that say things like, you're not under the law, but you're under grace. That doesn't mean we are a lawless people, and we have no commandments binding on us anymore. Um, When it says we're not under the law... We need to understand that the word law is used in a wide variety of ways in the Bible. Sometimes the word law refers to the whole Old Testament, all 39 books. Sometimes the word law refers to the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sometimes the word law refers to the Old Covenant as a whole. Sometimes the word law refers to the Ten Commandments in particular. Sometimes the word law refers to the ceremonial and the civil law. So the context will help us to know how this word is being used and what law it's referring to. So oftentimes when the Bible talks about us not being under the law, it's saying we're not under the old covenant anymore. We're under the new covenant. Okay. Um, But even when the New Testament is talking about the Ten Commandments and it says we're not under the law, what that means is not that those commandments are no longer relevant to us or binding on us, or that we are required to obey them. What it means is we're no longer under the condemning power of the law. And what that means is that the sentence, which says the soul that sins, it shall die is no longer binding upon us. And the reason why that sentence is no longer binding on us, though the laws themselves are is because Jesus bore that sentence on the cross He took our sins upon himself. He did die uh, under the law and its penalty. And as a result, satisfied its requirements. So therefore, it no longer obtains upon us because it obtained with reference to him. And so therefore, we are not under the condemning power of the law, though we are under the ethical obligation to obey the law. And we saw this, for example, uh, when we looked at Romans chapter 13 where it says in Romans 13 that love is the fulfilling of the law. Well, what law? You know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness. It lists um, several of the Ten Commandments. And it says that if there be any other commandment it is contained in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Um, and uh, it says that um, you know, love is the fulfilling of the law. So how do I know if I'm loving you? I'm keeping the Ten Commandments towards you how do I know I'm loving God I'm keeping the Ten Commandments towards God you know he is the Lord my God I have no other gods before him uh, I don't worship idols I don't use the Lord's name in vain I remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy which is now of course Sunday under the new covenant and so uh, that's how I show love to God how do I show love to my fellow man I honor my father and my mother I don't kill I don't commit adultery Um, I don't steal, I don't bear false witness, and I don't covet other people's stuff. And that's how we love people, is by keeping God's law towards them. Uh, And that's how we love God, is by keeping uh, God's law towards him. So the point is, is that the New Testament uh, clearly reaffirms all ten of the Ten Commandments as still being uh, ethically binding upon us today. And it does that in a number of passages. Well... Having then done all that teaching, notice, if you will, how it's all summarized in our doctrinal statement. Chapter 19, it says, God gave Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in 10 commandments and written in two tablets, the four first containing our duty toward God, the other six our duty to man. So this is the moral law of God. It was given to Adam And uh, it continues to be applied to the people of God. Now notice when the Ten Commandments were first given, they were first given in the Garden of Eden. Okay. So it's not like the Ten Commandments showed up for the very first time when the Old Covenant was instituted. Because one of the principles that we have understood as we've studied the Doctrine of the Covenants is that when a... Law began with the institution of a covenant. It also passed away when that covenant passed away. Okay. And so anything that began with the old covenant passed away when the old covenant passed away. But we saw that the Ten Commandments far preceded the institution of the old covenant. For example, when was the law to observe the Sabbath instituted? Genesis chapter 2 where God said uh, that that he set aside and sanctified the Sabbath day. We see the children of Israel observing the Sabbath day in Exodus chapter 16 and in Exodus chapter 18. And it wasn't until Exodus chapter 19 that the old covenant was instituted. And so it is with the laws against murder and adultery and all those things. When was uh, monogamous uh, marriage instituted? Before the fall, right? When God gave Adam one wife, not six... And uh, he said, they two, not they three, they four, they five, shall be one flesh. And so we see then that all of these requirements of, uh, you know, God confronted Cain about killing Abel. And uh, clearly murder was, was wrong back then. It didn't start being wrong when the, Ten, when, when, when the Old Covenant was instituted. So that's why the Ten Commandments didn't go away when the Old Covenant went away, because they didn't start when the Old Covenant started. And that's why they're still binding on us today. And uh, so that's what paragraph two is saying. Now notice paragraph three, beside this law, that is the 10 commandments commonly called moral, talked about the moral law of God. God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of reformation or the time of the new covenant are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver who is furnished with power from the father to that end, abrogated and taken away. So paragraph three is saying that, Um, the ceremonial laws were established by God. They were there to prefigure the work of Christ. When Christ came, all those ceremonial laws were abrogated and done away with by Christ himself. And uh, then paragraph four, to them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So if somebody goes out and picks up sticks on the Sabbath day, now uh, we don't put them to death. Uh, Those were civil laws that God set forth and um, no uh, church is bound to uh, enforce and apply such penalties and such laws against um, Sabbath breakers in its midst. All right, verse five, or paragraph five, I should say. Notice, In paragraph 3, it talked about the ceremonial law passing away. Paragraph 4, it talked about the judicial law passing away. Paragraph 5, the moral law doth forever bind all. The Ten Commandments does forever bind all. As well justified persons as others. That is, every single human being, whether they're a Christian or not, is obligated to obey the Ten Commandments and God is going to hold them accountable for it. So we can't say, well, he's unsaved. We can't expect him to obey God's Ten Commandments. Yes, we can. And God will. And God will hold them accountable for that on the Day of Judgment. And while he won't hold them accountable for whether they kept the ceremonial and the civil law because those things have passed away, he certainly will hold them accountable as to whether they kept the moral law, the Ten Commandments, or not. So, paragraph 5, the moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matters contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God the Creator who gave it neither doth Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve, but much strengthens this obligation. In other words, while Jesus in the gospels certainly put down and put away the ceremonial law and the civil law, he actually strengthened the moral law. Where did he do that? On the, on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because he said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, if you're even angry with your brother, You know, you've committed murder already. He said the same thing with the law regarding adultery. And he took other laws of God and he reinforced them and strengthened them. He didn't say, oh, you know, you guys don't have to worry about that. Um, And uh, so verse, uh, paragraph six, it says, Although true believers are not under the law, that is the Ten Commandments, as a covenant of works to thereby be justified or condemned. So it's not like by keeping the Ten Commandments we earn justification or by breaking the Ten Commandments we thereby wind up being condemned. Okay, The law is not a covenant of works. We're not saved on the basis of law keeping or condemned on the basis of law breaking. It says, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives. Paul says, I had not known lust, except the law had said to me, thou shalt not covet. He says, but when the law came, sin sprung up within me, and as a result, I experienced spiritual death in Romans chapter 7. So, it discovers the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, that is, in light of the law of God, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ, and the perfection of his obedience. So I look at the law of God, I look at me, I realize, man, I do not even measure up to the moral standard God requires of me. Therefore, I need Jesus Christ as a Savior. And so, one of the chief purposes of the Ten Commandments now is to convict us of sin and show us our need of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Okay, So, then it goes on to say, following uh, the word obedience of Christ and the perfection of his obedience, It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them although freed from the curse and the unalloyed rigor thereof. So not only does the law of God Show us our sinfulness and lead us to faith in Christ. But once we've obtained faith in Christ, the law of God shows us how we ought to live. So it restrains our sinfulness. Why, as Christians, do we not lie? Because the law says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Why don't we steal? The law says, thou shalt not steal. So even as Christians, the law is there to restrain our corruption in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even our sins deserve and what afflictions in this life we may be expect for those sins even though we're freed from the ultimate curse. So when we break God's law and we see that God's judgment uh you know, the the judgment that he used to prescribe for the breaking of that law. We realize the seriousness of what we've done. We realize that if God is pleased to chastise me for breaking his law, that's perfectly just. And the fact that I'm not chastised more than I am for all the law breaking that I do is an amazing manifestation of God's grace. So that if I do have some, um, chastising in this life. I'm not going to complain about it. It's less than what I deserve. And so, you know, people say, oh, you know, God uh, is being so mean to me because of this and this and this. I say, well, you know, you, what you deserve is to be in hell. And so if you have anything less than that, you have lots to be thankful for. You not have anything to complain about. And so the law shows us what we really deserve. Uh, even though God does not give us that. And so it humbles us. Okay. The promises, it says of it, that is the law, likewise show them God's approbation or approval of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not due to them by the law as a covenant of works. So, when we see not only the punishments that are attached to the law of God, but also the blessings that are promised. For example, what does the uh, fifth commandment say? It says, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. And so not only are there curses attached to the law for its violation, there are blessings and promises attached to the law for our keeping of it. So when we look at the curses, we realize, ooh, that's what my sins deserve as a Christian, even though God is pleased oftentimes in his grace not to pour those out on me. And then when we obey the law of God, we see the blessings that uh, come to us as a result of that. And thus we have negative and positive motivations to, as Christians, engage in proper ethical and moral behavior, not to earn God's favor. Christ earned that for us but in order to glorify God, in order to show our love to God, and in order to obtain the blessings that God has promised for the obedience to his word. And so he says here, finally, So as man's doing good, positive, and refraining from evil, negative, because the law encourages the one and deters from the other, is no evidence of his being Under the law and not under grace. So when when we say the Ten Commandments are still binding on us, and we still need to obey them, and somebody says, oh, well, then you're under the law. No, we're not. Yes, we're under the law in terms of uh, it's that which led us to Christ. Having led us to Christ is that which shows us what we should not do and what we should do, and it provides us with incentives and arguments for Uh, both refraining from sin and engaging in righteousness. And yet us having that kind of a relationship with the law is not being under the law and not under grace because the law is not the grounds of our acceptance with God. And um, we are not under the condemning power of that law ever because all the condemnation that the law of God threatened us with was all put on the head of Jesus Christ, our substitute, so that we are delivered from the threatenings of the law, the punishments of the law, the soul that sins, it shall die, being separated from God and under the wrath of God in hell forever. We're free from that. We are under grace. That is, our relationship with God uh, vis-a-vis the law is still a relationship of grace. It's not one of works. Okay, final paragraph, paragraph seven. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. So now what is our attitude towards the law of God? It's not, oh, I better do it or I'm gonna get clobbered. Our attitude now is I want to do the law of God because thereby I'm going to glorify God by reflecting his moral attributes. Secondly, I'm gonna show my love to God. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Thirdly, I'm going to receive blessing for myself in the keeping of the law of God, Fourthly, by keeping the law of God, I'm going to be a testimony to the lost and show them that I'm living consistently with what I believe. And fifthly, we're going to reap all kinds of uh, advantages uh, from following the law of God. Uh, You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. God's law is a law of liberty, and by means of it, we are set free from the snares and the destructions of um, that which is contrary to the way in which we are designed to function. And so um, um, these are all the blessings and the benefits of the law of God. And so the psalmist says, Lord, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. So we don't resent it and we don't look at it as, as, as an oppressor. Um, you know, it says of the Christian in first John chapter five, it says, and this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous, so we're not grieved by the law of God and having to keep it. The only thing that grieves is that we don't keep it better. Not because of the ground of our acceptance, but because it's the basis of our blessing. And it's the basis of loving God. And it's the basis of loving our fellow man. Because how do we love our fellow man? Keeping the law of God. How do we love God? Keeping the law of God. How do we obtain blessing? How do we get set free from the destructive impacts of sin? Um, How do we bear witness to others? How do we bring glory? All by keeping the law of God. So no longer is it a means to earn God's smile. We have that from Christ. It's now a means to uh, bring him glory, show him love, and derive blessing for ourselves and being a testimony to the lost. So that's why we're motivated to keep it. So uh, this Ten Commandments has not passed away. Because for the Ten Commandments to pass away, God would have to pass away. Because the Ten Commandments are the glory of God. When it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, sin is coming short of the manifestation of God's glory, which is his moral attributes. And so the Ten Commandments reflect the glory of God. And you have to do away with God before you do away with the Ten Commandments because they're of a piece. The one reflects the other. So that's why the civil and ceremonial laws could pass away because they weren't reflections of the essence of God's glory, but the moral law is. And um, so uh, we didn't even get to our Sunday school lesson today in terms of where we're going to cover, but we'll do that next time. And and, and this is the second thing that remains of the old covenant is not only does the law of God, the 10 commandments remain, but also all the promises of God to the old covenant community remain and all those promises are now applied to the church. And so our memory verse today, that you were a chosen generation, a Royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Where have you heard that language before? Where have you heard it? You've heard it in Genesis. I mean, pardon me in Exodus 19:5 and six. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus nineteen. In Exodus nineteen, God is establishing the old covenant, right? And notice verse five. Exodus nineteen five. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and, and keep my covenant, there's the condition, you guys keep my laws, then you shall be, notice, a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. Now, look at your memory verse. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a what? A peculiar people. Now, notice it says, verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now look at your memory verse, but you were a chosen generation of what? A royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And then he says, and a holy nation, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a what? Holy nation. So all three of the terms that a blessing that are set forth in the old covenant are applied to the new covenant church. What isn't applied is the conditional nature of the covenant, but the blessings are. So my point is, is all the blessings that are contained in the old covenant are applied to the new covenant community. And that's why it's, we don't have to wait to some you know, future millennial kingdom to have all the promises made to Israel applied. They're all applied to the church. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you that the church is the new Israel. We are the kingdom of God, and all the promises given to Israel are now given to the church. Lord, thank you that we are that peculiar treasure to you. We are that kingdom of priests. We are that holy nation. And we fulfill all those roles when we show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Father, help us to do so this week. Help us, Father, to love the law the Ten Commandments, and to live it as an act of love to you, obedience to you, and glory to you, as well as a means of blessing for our own lives and a testimony to the lost. Father, we pray that you might help us to further understand these matters as we study them more next week. In Jesus' name, amen.